Listen as I read the words of the apostle, the apostle Paul writing to a young church, words that God has written for us, his church. This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 13, 14, and 15. Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let me pray that God would make his word clear to us and that God would transform our lives by the power of his gospel. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we have sung of the the gracious and glorious work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We come this morning because of what Jesus has done for us. And so, Father, we come today in hope. In hope because we who were dead in our sins have been made alive with Christ. And so for those here today that haven't yet put their trust in Jesus, Lord, I pray that today would be a day of resurrection hope, a day of new life, a day in which the dead are spiritually raised. Lord, where there are questions and doubts, I pray that that your word would provide us with the answers we need. Lord, where we we feel burdened down by guilt and shame, Lord, I pray that, that the forgiveness of Jesus would change our lives. Lord, that we would be those who live with joy in the triumph of Jesus' cross. And so, Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Death by crucifixion looks nothing like victory. A human body nailed to a cross of wood, designed to destroy dignity. Everything taken from an enemy. His life taken. Stripped of his last possessions and publicly exposed. Every part of a crucifixion, execution on a cross, was purposefully designed to humiliate the victim. The soldiers tasked with the execution of Jesus, they mock him as they lead him to his death. Each of the four Gospels tells us of, of the death of Jesus, but, but Mark's Gospel is, is, is just one of those examples. When the soldiers led Jesus away after he's been condemned to death, we're told they put a purple robe on him. They twisted for him a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff, and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. At the cross, they remove the last of his garments. Mark tells us that those who passed by, merely those walking in and out of the city, stopped to insult him. The religious leaders, were told, mocked Jesus. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. 
Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. For anyone watching, the cross appears foolish. To anyone passing by, it is a picture of defeat. The cross is the evidence for a religious person of God's judgment and that person's shame. A horrendous defeat, a bloody end, a tragic conclusion. And yet Paul calls the cross victorious. He says the cross is not a picture of Jesus' defeat, but of his victory. We as Christians use it to, to decorate our building. There is a cross on the steeple. There is a cross over the door. Many of you wearing it as jewelry, a symbol of execution, a picture of our victory. We include the cross rightly in the lyrics of praise in our songs and worship. Because the cross, an apparent defeat, is the true victory for the one who puts his trust in Jesus. The cross is your only hope. Paul is telling us in Colossians chapter 2, the victory that you need is found in the cross of Jesus. Because look at how Paul describes us, describes all who are sinners against God, and that's every one of us. Look back at verse 13 of Colossians 2. Paul, writing to believers in the church, he writes, he says in verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. I mean, the, the, the terms are, are pretty stark. When you were dead. When you were spiritually dead. When you had no life. When, the, when we checked for a pulse and there was nothing there. That's when God acted on your behalf. Paul uses religious language there, the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, a, a, a picture of the physical circumcision of God's people, but really pointing us, as the verses Pastor Mike read to us last week reminded us, of the work God does in our hearts spiritually, taking away the sin in our lives and giving us life. You were dead. You were hopeless. You were helpless. And yet, and yet we're, we're tempted to think, oh, that, that, that's too much. It's too much to, to say that we were dead in our sins because, because we've, heard it, we've heard it said this way, you know, God helps those who help themselves. We don't, we don't think we need a resurrection, a miracle. We just think we need a little bit of encouragement. You're here maybe this morning to just get, get a little bit of a pep talk from the pastor in order to, to get on with your life, that, that you want me to tell you you're not really, things aren't as bad as they seem. No, no. Paul is telling us things are worse than they seem. If you are apart from Christ, then you are dead in your transgressions and sins. You are hopeless and helpless. Because the, the, that, that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is, is a lie. Now, it's, it, it's close enough to the truth that it, it sounds, and it's, and it's pithy and it's memorable, that it almost sounds useful. But it's a flat-out lie. 
Because Jesus didn't come to, to just give us some good advice to sort of turn us around and point us in the direction. No, 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 no not, not this way. Let's go this way. No, you were dead and needed to be rescued. Now, you've heard over recent years me, me quote from Pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse. And one of the illustrations that he used repeatedly to describe the, the predicament in which we found ourselves was he said, imagine yourselves. Now, this is a, a preacher preaching on, the, on the, the tail end of, of World War II man who had served in World War I, but, but preaching after the stories have come back of, of men being lost in the Pacific Ocean. He says, imagine you, are, 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 you crash in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, a plane crash, and there are three survivors, but there are no life rafts. There's, there's nothing to grab onto. It's just you and thousands of miles in, in any direction to swim to safety. And he says, now, now imagine one of you is, is really just beginning to learn how to swim. You're at best a dog paddler. Then the other is somebody who's, who's been at the YMCA frequently and, and, you know, can, I mean, he can swim lap after lap. And the third of, of, these, of these people there in, in the middle of the ocean is, is an Olympic champion swimmer. Which one of them is going to swim their way to safety? None of them. None of them. The only hope, if you're trapped in the middle of the Pacific Ocean... I don't care how good of a swimmer you are. Your only hope is for someone to come and rescue you. See, and those of us, many, of us, many of us think, well, you know, but I'm doing pretty well. I mean, I could go lap after lap. I mean, maybe not physically, but, but spiritually, I feel like I, I'm doing pretty well. And yet it's the, the depth of the, the predicament. It's the distance from shore that really matters. You were dead in your sins. There is nothing you can do to save yourself, and yet there is great hope for us. Because notice as verse 13 continues, Paul, having shown us our condition, then shows us what God does. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. See, God gives you the terrible diagnosis. You are worse than you thought you were. But the good news is even greater than you could have imagined because you were dead, but God made you alive. God made you alive with Christ. By identity with Christ, by putting your trust in Jesus and what he has done, we, as one commentator says, we then experience the full benefits of his lordship. When you belong to Jesus, everything that's true about his power and control and authority over the universe, his power over even life and death, is, is now yours when you're identified with him. You were made alive with Christ. That phrase, with Christ or in Christ, with, with the simple preposition being put, with Christ, is, is used throughout Paul's letters. Shorthand reminding us that, that unless you died with Christ by putting your trust in him, then you can't be raised with Christ, but you have been made alive with Christ. And what has God done to make us alive? Look at the end of verse 13. He forgave us all our sins. You've been forgiven. You no longer bear the guilt of your sins. You no longer bear the weight of the shame of your actions. And, and how many of your sins? A couple of the really small ones. I mean, is Jesus able to really deal with your sin? I mean, you might say, well, well pastor, I mean, it, it, it's easy for you. You're, you're a man of God. You probably were, were pretty close to God already. But me? You don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I'm guilty of. Well, I don't. But God does. And which of your sins are forgiven? 
all of them, the little ones and the big ones, the long ago ones and the recent ones, all of your sins are forgiven if you've been made alive with Christ. It's not, we don't, we don't sing the hymn, Jesus, Jesus paid it 99%. Because that would be hopeless. Because the distance that you need to swim to shore is, is an unfathomable distance. Your treason, your action is treason against God. And so if Jesus just pays part of it, then you are hopeless. No, we sing Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He forgave us all our sins. God has forgiven us. How, did, how does he do it? Look, look at verse 14. He, he has canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. It's as if, commentators describe, there, there's an IOU, a written document that describes what you owe to God. As if we as humanity have, have, have written out a document that says, I owe God obedience to his will. And it has your name signed at the bottom of it. And yet, you haven't obeyed. You've, you've turned against this agreement. And so now this written code, this IOU, stands against you, exposes your sin and brokenness. See, our debt only becomes clear when we step near to God and try and settle our accounts. You, you've, been, you've been swiping your card without paying attention. You've been, you've been authorizing payment without noticing how much it costs. You, you, just, you just set it on recurring payment and you've, you've forgotten about it. And now finally the bill arrives and you have to pay. And yet the IOU is too great. Your sin is too great for you to pay. There's nothing you can do, but Jesus paid it all. Now, you might think, you know, no, 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 no. I never entered into any agreement with God. Like, I didn't, you know, I'm not even sure I believe in God. I mean, I'm trying to figure that out. Maybe that's, maybe that's where you sit today. You're, 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 just, you're just wrestling through this, and you think, no, I don't know God anything. And yet, when we try and act like we don't owe, we're, we're under obligation to no one. When we, when we live with principles that, that nobody tells me what to do, we very quickly run up against the, the end of, of ourselves. Because we, we want to go around saying, I can do whatever I want, and yet, well, we want to make sure other people don't do that to us. Right? I mean, I can do whatever I want, but you better not do whatever you want. Because we all live under this sense of some, some level of moral obligation. Maybe we think it's, it's something we've agreed upon with each other. But, 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 but I think when, we as a, when, when, when Christians admit that, yes, morality comes from somewhere, and we think it, it's given to us by God, that, that there are some actual standards, that the universe makes sense because it was made by a God who is just and right, and beautiful, and good. You might think, but, but that, that feels like nonsense. But, but where, do, where do moral obligations come from? If everybody can just do whatever they want, then the most you can sort of do is sort of push back at me and say, well, I sort of think this would be kind of nice if you might possibly maybe do it this way. But there'd be nothing to stop anyone from just trampling over you. 
Because right and wrong would be mere categories that we've agreed upon. And so if somebody doesn't want to agree to your categories, then there's... But, but I, don't think that, I don't think that really makes sense. Because deep down inside of you, when somebody does something wrong, you don't have to sit down and sort of, and sort of work it out and think, well, based on this sort of social agreement that we have by people that live around each other, that I, I think maybe this might go against, go against what we've agreed upon. No, I think it's more instinctual than that. I mean, if, if you walk down and, and watch our kids in the nursery, which, go ahead and volunteer. We, you can, you can, we can sign you up in, in coming weeks. But, but you can get a picture of God's justice at work. Because those, those toddlers don't need to be taught that some things are just unfair. They have this instinctual reaction. Wait, that was mine. Give it back to me. And maybe they don't have the vocabulary yet to describe it, but, 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 but very quickly, they'll start saying things like, that's just not fair. And when somebody does something wrong to you, you have that same two-year-old instinctual reaction within your own gut. This just isn't right. But where has that come from? This idea that the world is filled with right and wrong. It comes from the fact that God made us and we are all in relationship with him. You might reject him, you might ignore him, but because he made you and you live in his world, you are under his authority. And so because you and I have, have rebelled against God's good word, then we are guilty before his own written standards. The IOU is one we cannot pay. And so you were dead in your sins, but God made you alive, and now the victory that God gains is on public display. Because notice, notice how verse, verse 14 ends. God has taken the IOU, and what has he done? He's taken away the, 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 the written code that stood against us. By, the, by here, at the end of verse 14, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Your sin, your obligation, taken from you. The debt is no longer yours because it's taken and nailed to the cross. I remember as a youth pastor on a retreat, uh, participating in an activity that just felt so cheesy to me at the time. There was this big styrofoam cross at the front of the room. And students were given each a little note, you know, piece of note paper. And they were supposed to write something terrible on it. Their sin, and then walk up to the front of the room and take a, take a little nail and push it in to that styrofoam. A picture, perhaps, of, of this kind of passage, that God took your sin away and nailed it to the cross. Now, it felt a little bit cheesy to me because I mean, the cross was blue foam. I mean, it just felt very inauthentic. But it also felt a little bit trivial that it, that it was as simple as me just writing it down. And yet, don't you see what God has done? He's taken the full list of your sins, the ones that you've gotten so good at, at denying that you don't even remember you did them. The ones that, that you're so good at, at, at slithering out from underneath any, any sense of moral obligation that you actually, you take credit as if that was something good. And yet God sees the whole IOU. He has the full account in front of him. And what has he done? He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. But it's not merely a styrofoam cross. It's a wooden cross of Rome. And it's not merely a piece of paper, an IOU nailed to the cross. It's God's own son. 
And in this public spectacle, we now have a picture of the victory of Jesus Christ. See, Rome always made sure that crucifixions took place in a very public venue. You don't do it down at the end of a dead-end alley, hidden away. No, you do it on a public road. Jesus is crucified outside the walls of the city during a a time of festival when, when crowds would be coming and going from the city. You do it up on a hill so that people would see it from a distance. Because Rome understood that if you want to maintain control by fear and intimidation with the world's largest and most powerful army, then you need people to be afraid of rebellion. And so the cross is used for terrorists and insurrectionists, violent men trying to overthrow the power of the Caesar. And so this public display, though, isn't a display of Jesus' defeat. Because look at what Paul says in verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made them a public, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus has gained victory over every power and authority that sets itself up against Jesus. I mean, at the cross, Jesus looks like the most helpless of men. He has nothing left. He's physically nailed to a cross. The crowds mock him and say, if he was really the Son of God, then he should come down. He said he would save others, but he can't even save himself. And yet, the the irony is clear. The way that Jesus saves others is by not saving himself. It wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. Yes, the nails held his physical flesh to the cross. It was his own decision and will. He had told his disciples just hours before, don't you, think I could, don't you think I could end this all right now? I have legions of angels. Yes, the, Caesar has legions of men, but many of them don't want to even be here. They don't like this part of the world. They're not really willing to give their lives for Caesar. I have the angel armies by the thousands who could come and end this now. With a word Jesus had spoken into existence the entire universe. Remember what we read in Colossians chapter 1. Everything was made for Jesus, and yet he willingly was nailed to a cross. Made a public display. But in this public display, Paul says, He is showing his triumph because Jesus is exalted and lifted up as the savior of sinners, the rescuer of men. And so it's his enemies that are put on display. The language here, and every commentator points this out, this language of triumph is the language that would make sense in the Roman Empire. When the victorious general comes back from battle, the people line the streets. The Senate issues a proclamation, a day of triumph honoring his victory. He marches in with his armies. He marches in with, with his enemies in chains, a public spectacle showing the, the general's great power. And in many parts of the world, you can go and still see the displays, the, the arcs of triumph in many cities in, in the Roman Empire, seeing the great victory. And that's what Paul is saying. The enemies of God are made a public spectacle. The victory of Christ is seen clearly in the cross. The terrorists against God have been stripped of their weapons. The cross is the public display of the power and victory of Jesus. But is it your victory? Have you confessed 
your sins. Because there are still two categories of of people here in these passages. Those who are triumphed over and made a public spectacle of God's victory in their defeat. There are still enemies of God, but then there are those redeemed by God, whose defeat is shown in their humiliation, falling before Jesus at the cross, admitting their sins, confessing that everything I owe was paid by Jesus. Has your debt been paid? Is Jesus your victory? There are college football blowouts, and then there's the most lopsided game in college football history. More than a century ago, Georgia Tech beat Cumberland. I mean, the score is, it's, I mean, it's almost unfathomable. 222 to zero. Now, nobody who watched the game expected the game to be close. Georgia Tech had won their opening game the week before, 61 to zero. And Cumberland had actually tried to cancel this game. The school was teetering in the, in the, the early uh, uh, decades of, of this century. They were, they were teetering on bankruptcy, so they'd actually canceled their football season. But Georgia Tech said, okay, if you forfeit, then there's a forfeiture fee in the contract. They had lawyers look it over. They couldn't get out from paying this fee, and it would have bankrupted the school. And so they, they found 13 men to send down to get slaughtered by Georgia Tech. A historian says that, that when Cumberland couldn't pay the fee, they needed a group of students to pay the price. I mean, so these 13 men were basically an intramural team against a dominant team coached by John Heisman, the man whose name is now on the, the most prestigious trophy in college sports. Now, Georgia Tech scored on its first possession, so it's 7 nothing. Then on Cumberland's first possession, they fumble on their very first play, scooped up for a Georgia Tech touchdown, 14-0. They get the ball back and again fumble on their first play, 21-0. They decide on their next play, on first down, they're just going to punt it back, 28-0. By the end of the first quarter, it's 63-0. Georgia Tech added another 63 points in the second quarter. They're down by 18 touchdowns at halftime. Now, miraculously, there was not a single first down in the entire game because it never took Georgia Tech more than four plays to score. 222 to nothing. Now, you might think that, that why would you continue to run up the score like that, especially a, 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 an esteemed coach like John Heisman? Well, the, the problem was there weren't really national rankings at the time, and so people at the end of the season looked at the total number of points scored by a team to determine how good they were. And so it was expected that you would run up the score. And actually, the year before, Cumberland wasn't that bad, and they had actually beat Georgia Tech 22 to nothing. And so let's add another 200 points to that to humiliate them the next year a public display of overwhelming power. Now, the game was so bad that one Cumberland player snuck to the other sideline and sat down on Georgia Tech's bench and buried himself under a blanket. An assistant coach came up to him and said, Son, you're on the wrong bench. He said, I know, but please don't tell anybody. 
if I have to go back there, they're going to put me back in the game. The public spectacle was too much to bear. The pain, too great. And yet that's nothing compared to the victory of Christ. He's not running up the score. He's just that great. In comparison to any other power in the universe, he is the creator of everything. He is before all things. He is the one who is the Lord and Savior of all. Jesus is Christ's victory on the cross shows his incomparable power. But he shows his power in death, in taking your defeat upon himself by having his name put in the headlines with the losers. But will you, in seeing now the triumph of Christ, the power of his cross, we walk across the field, sit on his bench. It requires your humility, your cowering at his feet, your declaration that you have been defeated, but gloriously defeated in the victory of Jesus Christ. Jesus has triumphed at the cross. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I ask that, that you would show us the great and glorious victory of Jesus. Lord, not merely that we would be able to, to simply simply acknowledge it, but that we would truly and completely confess our sins, that we would put our trust in Jesus, our hope in him. Father, I pray for those sitting here that feel the weight of their sin, that, that feel beaten and battered by life, that, that feel like they can't go on. Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith to believe, the confidence to trust in you, the willingness to admit their sins. Lord, make us bold in sharing the gospel. Make us willing to, to declare the victory of Jesus. Lord, we were dead in our sins, but we have been made alive with Christ. Lord, give us hope and joy in the power of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.